This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hi everyone, it's Katie Couric and welcome to Next Question. Lovey Ajayi Jones is a writer, a speaker, and the author of two best-selling books, I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual, and her latest, Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighting Manual. I call my book manifestos, like life manifestos, kind of essay collections that are based in lessons that I know that if we take them on, we will be better for it. Lovey's books, like Lovey herself, are trying to help the rest of us do better for ourselves and in turn, the people around us. And let me tell you, this is one of the most inspiring conversations I've had. Lovey imparts her wisdom and drops some seriously sage thought gems. We're always looking for Superman to save the day. And I'm like, we all have red capes. New levels come with new devils. We gotta use our power for each other, not against it, and shred the machine. That's just a taste. There is a lot more where that came from. I hope you have a pen and paper with you because your lovey lesson starts now. Lovey, I think a lot of listeners probably have heard of you and know who you are, but there are some people listening to this podcast who might be thinking, who's lovey? So why don't you give us your bio in two minutes or less, lovey? I'm lovey Jai Jones and I am... A New York Times bestselling author, a speaker, a digital strategist, a lover of shoes, uh, a Nigerian girl, and a Chicagoan. I am a graduate of the University of Illinois. Shout out to the Fighting Illini. Uh, my degrees in psychology, which I thought I was going to actually practice, but I still love the idea of like how the human mind works. So maybe one day I can still do something related to it. And then what else? My favorite color is red. I eat rice almost every day. And um, 
I'm obsessed with hats and blazers. <laughs> Tell us how you got from a psychology major. And in a way, I think your work does explore the human mind because I think you're very emotionally intelligent and you connect with people and you see trends and all those things, I think, take a certain knowledge of psychology. But how did you get to where you are today, a writer, a speaker, a thought leader, really, in many ways? Yeah. So 18 years ago, I started my first blog. It was my freshman year in college. My friends peer pressured me into into doing it. They were like, we're getting web blogs. That's what it was called back then. So I got one and I chronicled my college career. And, you know, whatever undergrad shenanigans I was going through, exams, I was getting D's in because I actually thought I was going to be a doctor. So starting in college, my major was psychology pre-med. I ended up getting a D my first semester in chemistry, first and last year of my academic career. And I dropped that pre-med very quickly. I was like, nope, nope, I'm not supposed to be a doctor. I don't even like hospitals. So graduated from college, deleted the college blog and started awesomelylovey.com, the blog that I still have today. Um, And instead of talking about my life, I was talking about the world as I saw it. TV, regular randomness, race, politics, anything I really felt like. And I was working full-time as a marketing coordinator for a nonprofit. So I'd go to work nine to five and I'd come home and blog, which is this really nice hobby that I had. Um, Well, that hobby won its first award in 2009. And I got laid off my marketing job in 2010, April 2010. It's almost been 11 years. And I basically never had a chance to get another job because it was basically like the universe and God pointing me towards, you're supposed to be using your words to make people feel joy, make them think critically and compel them to take action that leaves this world better than they found it. So I was doing marketing and branding consulting for small businesses. As I looked for other jobs, I still looked for other jobs because I was like, no, no, you need to go find yourself a full-time job. You need a 401k and your shoe habit needs some supporting. (laughs) So I was still looking for jobs and sending resumes. I actually found that I was still sending out resumes up until like November, 2011. But I was, you know, doing what I love, really writing and and social strategy and digital strategy. But I basically never had a chance to get another job because clearly I was supposed to be working for myself, doing this under my own entity. Um, 2014, I came up with my first book idea. And it was after I was plagiarized by a journalist who took three paragraphs of my work, dropped it in his without any credit to me. And he emailed me after I went in, he emailed me and was like, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. And I remember saying, is there not a limited edition handbook on how not to be terrible at being humans? And that is what led me to writing I'm Judging You, the Do Better Manual, um, which ended up coming out in 2016. It hit the New York Times list instantly. That changed my life and my career. And then Shonda Rhimes uh, optioned it. Yes, yes. Shonda optioned it when she was at ABC Studios. And it just was this thing that really got me to be in rooms that I didn't even know existed. A year later, I did a TED Talk called Getting Comfortable with Being Uncomfortable. I realized comfort is overrated because being quiet is comfortable. Keeping things the way they've been is comfortable. And all comfort has done is maintain the status quo. So we've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable by speaking these hard truths when they're necessary. And I... 
talk went viral. It had a million views in a month. And that talk now has, I think, 5.6 million views. Another career changer. And that talk is what led me to write my new book, my latest book, Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighter Manual, which just debuted at three on the New York Times list. So that was, that was exciting. And um, so, yeah, my path is a series of moments that I didn't necessarily plan that led to something greater. But being open to the universe and where it takes you, which is yes. obviously what you did, Lovey. And I want to talk about the new book, but, but I do want to mention the other book, the, the, the previous book, I, I'm, I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual. When people say, what are these books? What do you say, Lovey? They are part memoir because I usually tell stories of myself because I put myself in the middle of my writing to make sure that I am not making myself self exceptional, that I am a guide instead of an expert in this whole thing. And my books don't take themselves too seriously because I don't take myself too seriously. So I'll talk through what I've learned. I'll make you laugh while you're reading it. Um, and hopefully make an idea that you've heard before stick better. Like what? Give me an example of that, Lovey. So think about... Imposter syndrome, which we've heard a thousand times, right? I think imposter syndrome is you putting on a, you feeling like you're wearing a mask that you've not earned or you're wearing a coat that does not belong to you. And I think about the moments when we're all in rooms that feel like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm here. And imposter syndrome comes roaring back. And I'm like, you know, spend less time being worried about how you made it in the room. Spend more time saying, well, I am here. So I'm going to make sure I bring value to the room. Imposter syndrome can be a driver, not a stunter, right? If we let it stunt us, it'll let us say, it'll make us say no to yes opportunities. You know, if we let it drive us, it'll make us say, yes, I might not feel like I'm ready, but I'll be ready. So I'm going to be better at my craft. I'll make sure I'm working hard. I'll make sure I'm being authentically myself. And that way I won't feel like I'm wearing a mask in that room. Sometimes, though, I think you have imposter syndrome when you feel like everyone's at a certain level and you're not, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you, I, I think there's a real confidence barrier to figuring out, well, what can I give to this room and not worrying about why you're there? How do you break through really convincing yourself that what you say is worth hearing? Mm. So I really... I have to put it in the perspective of we are often thinking everybody else is extraordinary but us, right? We're thinking the person who's in the room who looks like they're really comfortable in the room never had a fear, but they did too. They might even have a fear right then and there. So normalizing the idea that we're actually all walking around with all these silent fears and then also affirming yourself in knowing that your story and your words are no less valid than anybody else in the room. That in itself is a practice. You know, why is somebody else's story more valid than yours? Why, why should they be more important than yours? There are no, no real extraordinary people to me. I think we see extraordinary people and they're really ordinary people who decided to do something over and over again and it's stuck, right? So people aren't born extraordinary. Where, I mean, there are some people with extraordinary gifts, but I don't think you're just born extraordinary and then one day everybody knows your name. There are a lot of extraordinarily gifted people whose names we don't know because they didn't practice it out loud, you know, who didn't show their art. So I'm always thinking the people who are in those rooms that you might want to be in, 
Think about the fact they just happened to do something over and over again, enough to where somebody said, all right, I see you, I'm gonna ask you in here. So what is the thing that you just have to commit to doing over and over again if you want to be in the rooms that you are seeing everybody else in? More with the professional troublemaker in just a moment. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Your book is called Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighter Manual. Yeah. And I wanted you to define what a troublemaker is, but first, what a troublemaker isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A troublemaker is not a contrarian or the devil's advocate who's always like, well, let's look at it differently. They're not a troll who is throwing chaos bombs in a room. Professional troublemakers are people who are committed, dedicated to elevating the rooms that they're in and disrupting for the greater good. You know, they're the person who sits in the meeting and says, hey, the campaign idea, I would love for us to be a little bit more thoughtful about it. You know, they're the ones who are sitting at the dinner table where if your uncle makes a joke that's not appropriate, they'll be like, hey, uncle, not good. You know, and they're the friend. They're the friend that we all have who always willing to have a tough conversation, even though it might make other people uncomfortable. They're like, let's let's talk about this thing because it's important. I think troublemakers are necessary in the world and they're, they're being silenced more than they're being celebrated. And that is a mistake. I love what you write. A professional troublemaker is someone who critiques the world, the shoddy systems and the people who refuse to do better. As a writer, a speaker, and a shady Nigerian, I am the person giving the side eye to folks for doing trash things. I am the person who is unable to be quiet when I feel cheated. I am the person who says what you are thinking and feeling, but dare not say because you have a job to protect or you're afraid of how it will land. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty fearless. You don't, you're not afraid to express yourself. It seems to me that we're living in very treacherous times you know, in terms of expressing yourself and being misconstrued or taken 
wrongly, I think, especially as these culture shifts are unfolding mm-hmm. happily before our eyes. How do you kind of balance this need to speak out, you know, uh, speak truth to power, but also be received in a way that will help facilitate understanding and uh, changes in attitude and real progress, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think, you know, with speaking out and that one thing that people must understand about troublemakers is that. We don't just speak up because we're not afraid. We do it in spite of the fact that we are afraid. You know, we are bold and we come across as that, but it's not because we don't think there aren't going to be consequences sometimes. It doesn't mean we don't, we're not afraid of the fact that, yes, one person might misconstrue what we say or our intention and blow it up, right? It's just that we say, I understand that's a risk and I will take it. And it is one of those things, and it's not even about being fearless because I think fearlessness is not, not just about you're not afraid. I think fearlessness is that you're not letting fear make you do less. So you go, okay, I'm about to say this thing that might be controversial, but I really believe it. And I think it's the truth. And I'm going to say it. And you go, I know it might not land well. Some people might not like it, but I think it's important that we have this dialogue and you say it, knowing that you are also not in control of how anybody will receive it. One of the things that we must understand in this world is that the only people that we have any type of real control over is ourselves and everybody else is a crapshoot. (laughs) How everybody, you know, takes whatever you say is really up in the air. You might say one thing and it lands well. And then the next thing people go, why would you say that? And that's why you have to control yourself in terms of how thoughtful you're being. It's why I have a question framework that I use to ask myself whenever I'm, I want to say something that feels tough or that people might disagree with. It's, do I mean it? Can I defend it? Can I say it thoughtfully? If the answer is yes, all those three questions, I say it knowing that it might still land in a way that somebody doesn't like, but I've done my risk mitigation and I've done my obligation. Cause I think if I am constantly moving based on how I think people will receive it, my moves won't be authentic to me anymore. I'll be controlled by what I think is going to be the impact all the time, at which point I will take no risks. I will say nothing real. I will stay in a safe bubble and um, only say the things that I know will go well, which for a thought leader, I can't do that. Because what, how, do, how do I grow as a thought leader if I'm constantly only saying what's safe? Um, how do I, how give do me an grow? example, give me an example, lovey, of when you put something out there, it, it met all three criteria for going ahead and speaking out and it landed or it didn't. I mean, chapter seven of my book is called fail loudly. And it is, it chronicles the time when I made my biggest public fail, where I trended on Twitter because of it. A comment that I thought was innocuous that ends up being, oh my God, I can't believe she said it. And that moment for me was a lesson because I was like, it was less about what I said. It was about, it was more about how people wanted to react in that moment. It was also more about a lesson I need to learn about the fact that because I am a thought leader, because I am I have a bigger platform. My my words are engaged with differently. And the platform being bigger means 
more people are listening, there are more chances to be misunderstood. It doesn't mean I shut up. It doesn't mean I say less. It actually means that, one, I continue to give myself the chance to fail. Two, because each fail is a growth opportunity because I am a better thinker because of that situation. And then three, we cannot control other people. And the fear that a lot of us have, which is being humiliated publicly or, you know, ending up trending for something that is not positive. I went through it. It did not kill me, (laughs) right? It's one of those painful lessons that we're always afraid of that moment, though. And what's funny is in the moment when that moment happened, I actually wasn't afraid of it. It was something that felt innocuous, something that I wasn't even thinking was a problem. So I think it reinforced for me that my mission, my purpose, my words are bigger than any one moment. And I must continue to use it in a real way. And I need to be more thoughtful. All of that. It was like a big storm of, I need to show you (laughs) that new levels come with new devils. But also, when the worst case scenario happens, you can still recover. You can still pick your face up. You can still move forward and do your work. It will not destroy you. Every mistake, even big ones, are not destruction mistakes, right? Because we're always afraid of the destruction. So I was like, all right, if I made it through there, I can do something big. (laughs) What did you say? New levels with... New levels, new devils. Yeah. That's good to remember because I think people, that's one of the things that people live in fear of, right? Yeah. That they'll get a clap back or they'll get, yeah. you know, told no, or they'll get something and it will not destroy you basically. Correct. Correct. I think we're often like afraid of the worst case scenario, but then we'll use it to, it will opt out of the best case scenario in the process. So we won't say that thing that feels tough because we're afraid of the major clapback. But the best case scenario could be shifts in the world, could be shifts in how somebody's thinking, could be impactful to somebody somewhere who feels alone in this. It could help normalize somebody's pain. And how often are we opting out of that piece, that impact that we can have? Because we're afraid of our egos being hurt. You dedicate this book to your grandmother. Tell me about her and and why you got such courage from the person she she was. Yeah, my grandmother, Fumilayo Falloin, we called her Mama Falloin. She was a fireball. She was passion, love, kindness, all rolled in one package. And my grandmother took up space without apology in a big way. She allowed herself to be celebrated. And she never apologized for herself. You know, she walked with so much pride about just her persona that in her presence, it was hard to feel bad about yourself because you'd just be like, look at her. And she gave me the gift of that because I didn't realize that what she was doing was giving me permission to be who I am in a real way. She never had to be like, be yourself. She just was herself. And I was watching her and I'm like, okay. And I learned a lot from just seeing how she navigated through the world, which is often not kind to Black women. My grandmother was like, this is who I am. You're going to deal and you're probably going to love me. Like, you know, she was very kind in that 
anything that she had, if somebody else was missing it, she'll give it to them. She would, I've seen my grandmother, she'll have visitors and somebody will say, oh my God, I like your shirt. And she would literally go change and say here to the person who just complimented her shirt. The ring that I wear on this hand that I basically haven't taken off for like 20 years was hers. One day I was like, oh, grandma, that's really nice. She literally slips this ring, this gold ring off her finger and hands it to me. And I've been wearing it ever since. She was that woman who was just benevolent beyond understanding, but she didn't do it by sacrificing herself. And that was really key. I think women are often told or the messaging that we get is that we need to be of service, even if it is of detriment to ourselves. She was of service, but she was never going to sacrifice herself for it. I didn't see it. So I was learning all of that. And I think I carry that with me. And I'm thankful that she gave me that permission. How old were you when you came to this country? I was nine. And I'm curious how much the immigrant experience for you, Lovey, impacted sort of how you move in the world and how you see the world and how you want the world to see you. Mm, I think it's a big part of how I see myself and just everything about me. my The way I write, the way I approach humor, the way... My swag is very Nigerian. Um, my face is very Nigerian. Um, yeah, I think I see the world in a way that's different because knowing what it's like to come from a place where everybody looks like you and now everybody who looks like you is considered less than, it does shock your system. But I think I also had the bubble that protected me at home. You know, I kept that with me. And I, and I am service-oriented in that my, my family, especially, that's been a big part of us. Like, it's almost cultural for us to, to give. Like, if you were to come to my house and I only had a one-bedroom, for example, culturally, I'm supposed to let, let you have my bed and I sleep on the couch. And that is deeply embedded in how I operate, too. Um, and if I have too much of excess, I must have, somebody else must get some of it. But I think, yeah, just how I even approach Everything, food, from the food I eat, the music I listen to a lot, Afrobeats, is very much embedded in my culture. The fact that I can tell the stories of my grandmother and introduce people to new concepts that they might not have heard, that's in Yoruba land. It's all my culture. And I think I, I'm, I'm proudly Nigerian-American, and, I, and I'm hoping that somebody else somewhere gets to see me and say, you know what, I'm going to use her as the example to my parents as what's possible for me. A lot of, I think, women and women of color have dealt with not having enough role models Mm -hmm. in their lives, not seeing enough women before them. Too many of them are are first when they should be second, third, fourth, and fifth. And I'm curious how that that affected you and, and where you sought those role models other than your family. Yeah. So for a long time, I did not call myself a writer because I thought writers were journalists or novelists. I didn't see an example of a writer who was an essayist who wrote like I did. So it actually did cause me a bit of a mental roadblock for a while because I was like, yeah, I can't be a writer. Like Toni Morrison's a writer, but Toni writes novels. So I can't, that's not me. And I think about how 
just not having the example stopped me so much from that, that it brings me joy that I can be somebody's example now. You know, in terms of writers, there's so many of us now too that exist who are essays, who aren't just writing the novels. And so the kids who are Generation Z, they have a lot of options to look to. Like, that's possible. That version is possible too. And that's the gift that we didn't have. So part of the work that I do and how I show up in the world is with the hopes that somebody else is seeing me and being able to be like, okay, because Lovey did that and can do that, that means I can also and it's possible. It's that concrete example that we often need to know what is like possible for us. So whatever, the example that I didn't have, I became that example for myself. And then now I'm hoping I'm the example for other people. I think what's so exciting about the culture today, and there are a lot of ills about social media, but the way you can reach people, you no longer have few outlets with with gatekeepers who all basically look like the same person, have the same background, determine what's worthy or what's not. You can put things out in the world and and let people respond. And that has changed everything, don't you think? Yeah, social has democratized everything. I have been an early adopter of all the platforms. So I've been on Facebook since July 2004. I've been on Twitter since September 2008 and Instagram since 2012. And I've just watched all the platforms unlock doors in ways that's mind-boggling. People create an account and in, in three months, if they have the right content, have a million followers and will have all this option of who to work with. And I think it's beautiful because the lack of that, we had to strive for every bit of it. And social now opening that door, that means we're, we are... Every day, we're getting access to brilliant minds who, who previously would not have had the chance because of all the locked doors that were controlled by a handful of people. Now, some of these doors are wide open because you just sign up for an account. A free account opens up a door. I hope more people are doing it. How women can dump those archaic gender roles. Amen to that. More advice from Lovey in just a moment. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. There's still a lot of cultural conditioning and implicit bias to use sort of modern day buzzwords that keep women in general from doing the things that men have always done, that they have not felt comfortable doing, bringing attention to themselves, being considered a bitch, being outspoken, um, you know, not necessarily adhering to gender norms that have really been uh, established. Uh, obviously, for centuries, but still, I think the remnants of those pressures still exist. And and what do you tell women to in terms of being able to to kind of straddle that, or perhaps even better, put these expectations aside and kind of push forward? Because we've been wired to feel uncomfortable when we push through gender roles and expectations. Yep. yep. And and it's still, they're still very prevalent in the culture. Yeah, I think we should dump them. I think we should dump them. And I'm hoping this book helps people dump some of it. Because one of the things that women are especially concerned about is how do I make sure I don't brag about myself if I'm talking about something I did? If you stating the fact of something you did is bragging, then brag on. If I can say to you, my second book is a New York Times bestseller, and I say it in any tone, actually, and it's considered bragging, but I'm like, but that was actually just a fact, right? I think women need to get rid of the ideas that we should be these humble creatures who do not own what we're amazing at. I don't think us diminishing our dopeness does anybody any favors. So yeah, men get to say like, oh yeah, I did this. I raised this much amount for my company. And everybody takes it as fact and says, got it, respect. We say something that we did and we're instantly told, she's bragging. Well, you know what? Let me be bragging then. You know, I don't think we were brought here to be humble in the way we're thinking. Humility is valid, but humility does not mean you diminish or you self-deprecate. It means you know what you're amazing at, but you also give credit to all the systems around you, all the people who've allowed you to, to get there, the training you've gotten, your parents for giving you the opportunities. My humility is based in the fact that I know that my God-given gifts I've honed over years, um, and I've been given access to the life to have to do this because my mom made the sacrifice to move us to the United States. My grandmother lived this hard life before and was fully joyful by the time I met her, you know, and all the people who came before me, all the writers of color who came before me, all the Black women, scribes who came before me, I give them credit. But it does not mean I then sit here and diminish my gifts just to make somebody else feel better. So I think women, the sooner that we get rid of everybody's expectations of us, the better we will be for it. Let us make money without guilt. Let us be amazing in our work and being confident without guilt. Let us, you know, ask what we want without any guilt attached. 
And when we start doing that, we will start soaring even more because we don't need to shackle ourselves to the ground to make everybody else feel better. What about the desire on the part of so many women? And I think I speak for myself. I'm a pleaser and Mm. it's important for me to be liked, which doesn't necessarily or hasn't necessarily gone hand in hand with me. Uh, You know, I've always been kind of vacillating from being direct, saying what I want and worrying about what people think of me. Yeah. How, 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 How do you rid yourself of that? You know, you just have to just know logically that humans are fickle. Humans are fickle beings. And the things that we like today, we won't like tomorrow. We will change our reception of somebody's thoughts based on the mood we're in. Knowing that chasing human validation is a futile mission because we will always disappoint somebody. Somebody will always disagree with you. Somebody will always dislike you no matter what you do. So when we insist on people pleasing, we're like chasing people's fickleness and they don't even know when they would like us. They don't even know what we need to do to make them like us. So it's exhausting. It is a hopeless mission and it is a waste of time. It is truly a waste of time to try to receive the approval of most humans because you won't get it. You can bend yourself over backwards and somebody will still say, you didn't bend away. You didn't bend enough. That wasn't enough. So knowing that, I'm always like, I can't. I can't move with the idea that I, it's because I want a specific group to like me because the people who don't like me will never like me. If you don't like me now, you're never going to like me. So if I'm already on your, I hate her list, you can keep me there. You're not my people. I need to actually talk more and deepen my connection with those who are my people, the people who are already like, yes, I hear you, I see you, I affirm what you're saying. So I think we need to just know who our people are and speak to them. As long as our people are good, everybody else, mm, you don't have to like me, it's okay. I can't win you over, nor is it my job to win you over because no one human is more worthwhile than another. So if I'm like constantly trying to get you to like me, what about the person over there who doesn't like me? Now I got to spend more effort on that. So I think we just got to let, let it go and, and recognize that you don't even like everybody, right? So everybody shouldn't like you. I know a whole bunch of people hate me, which is great because a whole lot of people love me too. And they're the ones who I want to feed. They're the ones who I want to affirm. They're the ones who I want to spend some time with and hopefully loan courage and power when they need. Everybody else, I'm not their people, which is fine. Let's talk about the three sections of your book, Lovey, because one is be, one is say, one is do. And I wondered if you could just help us understand the takeaway from each of these sections. B, let's start with B, fear. Half the battle is with our own self, our own insecurities, and our own baggage. Go. Yes. In the B section, I'm talking about we have to get our mindset together because what we think is possible is a self-fulfilling prophecy, unfortunately. So we have to get rid of a lot of these attachments to people's thoughts about us. A lot of these attachments to people's dreams that they have for us. Some of these attachments to our own negative self-talk about ourselves. Got to get rid of it. It's not not useful. It is a waste of our time and energy. And you get stuck. And it makes you get stuck. You absolutely get stuck. It will weigh you down. It will weigh you down. It's like you're sitting on the couch while like holding onto a boulder. It will weigh you down. So what, what is your solution for that? 
gas yourself up, hype yourself up all the time. Have something at the ready. And I, in my first chapter, I make people write in a weekend and life mission statement because I want you to have at the ready something that is affirming about you, written down, noted, documented, whether it's laminated and sitting by your computer, whether it's by your mirror, something. So in those days when you're feeling weighed down, where somebody has called you a name that doesn't belong to you, or somebody has said you're not enough or that you're too much, refer back to this thing, read it over and over again until you feel okay again. And then just keep it there because you might need it the day after. Say, we've got to say what's difficult even when our voices shake. Yes. So after you get the mindset together, now you have to start putting the words to this new boldness and this confidence. Why? Because we got to say it out loud. There's power in our in our words. There's and it, and it basically establishes and keeps us accountable. We have to be the person who's in the room, not being silent as something is awful going on, but saying, you know what, I'm going to challenge that, and I'm going to do it thoughtfully, but I'm going to challenge that because I want to be proud of any place that I'm in. And finally, do. Grow anyway. Do what's hard anyway. Change anyway. Yes. So now you got to put some, some action to these words. You know, how are you moving different? What is the thing that you're going to do to make sure you're supporting yourself, to make sure you're honoring yourself? Um, and sometimes self-care looks like saying no. You know, sometimes self-care looks like firing yourself. Sometimes it looks like building your squad. Got to do action. So be right. Get your mind right. Say, use your words, do put some action to it. Your book had a transformational effect before it was even published on your editor, yeah. uh, Meg, Meg Leader. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and tell us how she successfully used your advice after reading the manuscript. Yes. So Meg read my manuscript last year. She was the first person to read the manuscript top down. And when she sent my first drafts back, it's um, she had edits and comments on the in, in the side. And she said, but my ask for more chapter, which is chapter four, she was like, just so you know, this chapter made me ask my boss for a raise. And I was like, oh, amazing. Already, I was really thrilled for her because I'm like, yes, come on and do the thing the book is telling you. In December, um, our last book meeting for the year, she was like, so I have some great news. I have been promoted to editorial director of Penguin Life. Not only did she get the raise, she got a promotion. And she's like, your book is what really compelled me to make that ask. And it's changed her life. She's like, your book has changed my life. And for me, that is the best case scenario of doing this type of a work. Knowing that my words can compel somebody to do something concrete that shifts their life in some in, in a really good way. I was like, wow, okay, so the book is already a success in my book. Like in, with my criteria, this book is already a, a wildly successful thing. What about move, having the courage to join forces with other people to really move the needle on some of these thorny cultural issues that are so, um, gosh, entrenched in our society? What is your perspective on that? Because obviously these are individual things that people can do, but what about things that they can do when they collaborate with other like-minded people? Yeah, I think this is also where it's important for us to be able to trust each other. 
and tell each other the truth. Because collaboration with other people is teamwork, right? And for teamwork to go very well, there has to be foundational trust and there has to be room for being challenged. We absolutely have to start getting together to solve bigger issues because that's why I say teamwork makes the dream work. Two heads are always better than one. Our collaboration is necessary. And we're all being collaborative in that, you know, even this podcast is collaborative. The fact that you are speaking to other people and bringing different thoughts together, that is the power of the world we live in. And we all have to start rising to that occasion. So whenever we are in the room, that's our ability and that's our platform in the moment. I think people are very, people think platforms and and collaboration comes with having 400,000 followers. No, I think the platform we all have are the rooms that we're in, the people we get to talk to, our friends, our colleagues, people we might have never met, but we know we can text them because everybody has an internet friend, okay? That's our platform. And we collaborate in just seeing the humanity in each other and saying, listen, here's the thing that we got to do. Can you join me in fixing this? And that's why we all have to do our parts in being troublemakers. It's why we all have to kind of commit to saying, if I am in the room, I will be proud of what happens in it. I will be the person who's asking questions, who is making sure that we've checked out our blind spots. You know, the person who asked the one extra question that might lead us to a black hole of discussion, but it's needed for this thing to be as thoughtful as possible. We need everybody to do that. It can't just be one person doing it. You know, we're always looking for Superman to save the day. And I'm like, we all have red capes. You don't have to wait for Superman. Use your own cape. And finally, I love just listening to you, Lovey. And and finally, you you quote John Lewis, who was such yeah. a great man about, you know, get into necessary good trouble, which has become obviously so associated with him and, and the life, the incredible life he lived. But but you also say he's a shining example of loaning courage. So how how what does that mean exactly? And how can we all loan courage? Yeah. I think we loan courage by affirming each other. You know, the late, great John Lewis absolutely loaned courage by modeling what courage looked like. You know, he will, he spoke up when it was tough. He put his body on the line when it was tough and hoping people would see him and say, I can also do something. Even if I'm not doing that, I can do something. And the piece about loaning courage is especially real for me because my TED Talk that now has all these million views, I almost didn't do it after turning it down twice. I was about to turn it down a third time when I called my friend Unique Jones-Gibson, who you know. Yeah, I sure Unique do. is one of the besties. I called her and I was about to say, I was, I was telling her, I was like, hey, Pat Mitchell wants me to do this TED Talk. It's in three weeks. I don't think I can do it. Everybody else has already had a coach. Everybody else has already been rehearsed. They have their talks together. I would have to come up with my own talk and present it in, on the stage in three weeks. And Unique literally said, everybody ain't you. She's like, you're not everybody. Your speaking has been your coaching. You've been on the stage every three days. You have eight years of experience. You are not everybody. So get off my phone, go write this talk and kill it. And that is the moment when I actually deleted the email I was going to send, declining it for the third time. And what Unique did then was she loaned me courage. She reminded me of my power when I actually wasn't sure of it. And that's what I hope John Lewis's life does for a lot of people. That's what I hope when they see people like me who show up boldly also. I hope we're loaning people courage constantly. I hope they're thinking about my words 
in the meeting with their boss when they ask for the promotion. I hope they're thinking, I should have that tough conversation with my friend. And I hope when they're asked to celebrate each other or themselves, they don't feel bad about doing it. We can all loan each other courage from afar and when we're right up in the room. So affirming each other's experiences in our lives. Why do you think women haven't done a better job of loaning each other courage that they have been heretofore, I think, competitive? I mean, I've been very competitive through the years. I can't say that I've necessarily done a good enough job loaning courage to other women who I see as threats. Mm -hmm. So how how do you get rid of that, I think, natural impulse to see other women who may be vying for a job that is the same as yours as sisters and not threats. Yeah, I think about it as, one, women have been programmed to not be supportive of each other because the patriarchy, the systems we live in have told us that if one of us wins, the rest of us fail. So we've been told that scarcity is the way to move when really it's abundance. Because if you get a position I want, that doesn't mean I failed. It actually means you won, which means hopefully you're opening the door that allows more women to come behind you. I think for us is understanding that, to be quite honest, competition isn't real. You know, even if you are in a hundred meter dash, the person who wins is is the person who runs the fastest race. When you win and you're facing 20 people and you end up getting 10 seconds, maybe that 10 seconds might not actually be the one that wins the race. You might do another race and you ran 15 seconds and that won. It doesn't matter what other people are doing. If your best is what showed up, your best was enough. Whether or not you came in first place, byproduct. So I'm always thinking, if even if I am up for a keynote with another woman and they're choosing somebody else, all I know is my job in that moment is to put my best foot forward. But if their best foot forward actually bests mine, congrats, you won that. It doesn't mean there's fewer jobs for me. It doesn't mean it takes me out of the game completely. It doesn't mean I'm not a great speaker. It just means that person's best in that instance. Beat mine. Doesn't mean mine sucked. And it's a constant affirmation. And I think just thinking through the fact that the thing, the machine that has been put in place that has told us there's only one job and 30 people are vying for it. And if you don't get the one job, your life is ruined. Break the machine. We got to start breaking the machine. Like, I'm totally not interested in participating in those types of games where it's like one and everybody else is not good. No, no, not interested, not interested at all. So, yeah, me and my friends, again, I have a lot of friends who are in the same industry as me who are probably up for some of the same keynote speaking gigs. And I'm just like, whoever gets it, gets it. Whoever gets and then the next one might be mine. Or maybe I get in and I say, huh, who's your closing keynote? You know who I know who's amazing? Her. And then now we get to go to the same conference. Everybody wins. (laughs) So we just have to start insisting on using our power. And in these moments when people want us to be in competition, twist it on its head. My whole thing is, if I can't even do something, for example, I'll pass it on to another woman who I know. Hey, I know I can't do it, but she can. She's amazing at that. And oftentimes they'll say yes. So we got to use our power for each other, not against it, and shred the machine. You're how old, lovey? I am 36. How'd you get to be so wise at such a young age? 
I observe and I absorb, and I am a forever student. Um, I have been pretty much an old soul since I was young. My mom tells me that all the time. Anybody who knows me when I was little tells me that all the time. Um, But I think I just continue to absorb the good in the world so the bad does not take over my psyche. I'm constantly like, what can I learn? How can I serve? And how can I honor myself as I'm honoring everybody else around me? So yeah, forever student. Well, lovey Ajayi Jones, you're so fun to talk to. I feel very inspired just having this conversation. Not to mention you have the most beautiful smile. Your new book is Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighter Manual. I think there's really valuable life lessons for everyone in this book. Women, men, anybody. Katie, thank you. That is an honor. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.